0: Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. Now, I'm not trying to rub this in when I tell you, but I really don't have to be here. I had an out. I did. Today is July 24th. This is, uh, well, some call it uh, Pioneer Day. Uh, The the apostates call it Pie and Beer Day. (laughs) Actually, it's a state holiday in Utah, celebrating the arrival of the Mormon pioneers back in 1847 to the Salt Lake Valley. And uh, you know I'm not trying to make a big deal out of this but it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's uh, probably second only to the 4th of July in terms of celebrations, parades and fireworks and rodeos and well everything else that goes along with it. But the the biggest part of all is it's a day off. The state shuts down. Banks are closed, businesses are closed. I mean hey, you know, come on, we take a holiday wherever we can get it. Thank you pioneers. Thank you very much for giving us this out. I only point this out because I want a virtue signal just as shamelessly as I can. But here I am behind the microphone, fearlessly bringing you information that will hopefully enhance your understanding of the world and inspire you to stand and make the difference you were born to make. I know that sounds pretty lofty, but... um, Actually, okay, and in in interest of full disclosure, it's also due to the fact that uh, my studio is in my home, so it really was a matter of uh, just simply trundling down the stairs to the studio and plopping down in uh, my comfortable office chair and picking up the microphone and going. It's not like I had to get dressed up or anything. Although, for the record, I did. (laughs) Perfectly groomed, wearing nice clothes as if I were going to a real job. All right. I'm just joking around a little bit. It's uh, There There are some people who are taking the day off today, but I, I'm not one of them. I'm grateful for this. And, and uh, OK, I'm going to explain here. I'm going to put my heart out there. Um, please don't step on it. But this never feels like work to me. It's never a sense of, oh, crap. <sighs> I got to come up with stuff to talk about for two hours. <laughs> this is so hard. Now, there have been times where, you know, it, it felt like work. That was a long time ago. And I I can't tell you exactly when the shift came about, but there there came a time where I became more driven by purpose than simply by showing up and doing a job. I'm not just doing it for a paycheck. I'm not just doing it for notoriety. Uh, When I sit down and crack open the microphone, really I want to have impact and I want to have good positive impact. And that's a whole different level of motivation than the guy who's just punching a clock to get a paycheck and, you know, be done with it. And by the way, I hope that doesn't sound like, therefore, my job is better than yours. I'm not saying that at all. I I will say that I'm very happy to be doing what I'm doing. I feel a sense of personal calling. I'll take it one step further. I feel like I am doing what God created me to do. And that is one of the happiest feelings that, uh, that I can think of. So hopefully that sets the stage a little bit for where I'm about to go here, because it's it's important in doing what I do. I really do try to to share information that hopefully is relevant, that's that's provocative and somewhat different from the the pablum that you're being spoon fed. By most media sources, and it's not that I have all the answers, I'm just saying there's a uniformity, there's a, a consensus that, uh, well, you know, these are the things, this is the way that things are, that uh, that seems to dominate much of the mass media, and I see things a little bit differently, and it's it's because I'm looking from a slightly different vantage point. I'm not saying they're all wrong, totally, I'm just saying there's sometimes some pretty gaping holes in what is being shared that make it difficult for us to to make an honest or or a, a clear assessment of what the world around us is is really like or what is actually taking place that it should be of interest to us. And in my defense, I always try to take it back to, you know, what are the principles that matter? What are the things that uh, that are foundational that will stand the test of time? As opposed to, well, this is going to benefit this party or it's going to make that party have frowny faces which seems to be a driving factor in a lot of media coverage. I want to talk a little bit about propaganda. And I know there are those who would say, well, Brian, everything you utter, every word you breathe is propaganda. And it may be that way to some people. But I don't think you can understand the world around us without taking some time to delve into propaganda, what it is, how it works, why it works. And this means you have to be willing to do some of the, the study of human psychology. Now, I'm not a psychologist, and I wouldn't even say I'm a serious student of psychology. But it's no, no exaggeration to say that public propaganda or public domain psychology has been around for more than a century. It's a science Edward Bernays wrote the book, Propaganda, almost a century ago. In fact, it may have been a century ago. And he's very, like Machiavelli, it wasn't like he was trying to make a judgment here. He was just saying, this is what works. And his techniques were good enough that they were adopted by pretty much every power center since that time. The Nazis used it, America and its government has used it, and so have a host of others. Advertising agencies use it because they know it works. Caitlin Johnstone recently had a beautiful essay on what's called the just world fallacy. And that's the reason I want to share this with you, because this is something I see crop up very often when when someone is in trouble with the law. And I'm just going to use uh, my friends, the Bundy's, for instance. Something comes up in the news. Well, you know, of course, Clive and Bundy was arrested <laughs> What's the assumption of most people who've never met him or aren't even familiar with with the, the whole background of, you know, why did he fire the BLM? Why did the BLM send an army to his uh, to his neck of the woods to collect on a debt? They don't know anything about that. But if it's reported, well, you know, uh, Cliven Bundy was arrested in Portland on, uh, on Monday. The immediate assumption that people have is, well, he must have deserved it. That's the just world fallacy. And Caitlin Johnstone has a great essay explaining why it works that way and and why we need to be careful of it. Because, look, there are a lot of people out there, believe it or not, who actually are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to stand up for truth. And I'm a big believer in you. You speak the truth. You stand up for the truth. Even if your voice is shaking, you still speak the truth, no matter how unpopular it may be. It matters more than simply uh, keeping things smoothly sailing along, especially if there is real danger or there's, there are real serious consequences ahead if we don't see what's coming. And Caitlin Johnstone says we need to be aware of the well-documented logical glitches in the way that our human brains process information. That means if if you are a dissident in any way, if there's anything you find, "I, I don't agree with the way the mainstream media portrays Donald Trump or I don't agree with the way they portray gun owners or I don't agree with the way that they do this or that. You have to be willing to research and understand what cognitive biases are and why we think the way we do. Because I promise you, the propagandists out there, and I mean the the ones who really are, trying to, to spread a narrative or to maintain a narrative that will keep you from focusing on the truth. They know about these glitches, and they're exploiting them with every molecule of their being. As Caitlin Johnstone says, if you don't cultivate a healthy respect for just how advanced modern propaganda has become... You won't be able to understand what the propagandists are doing when you observe the behaviors of the political class or the media class. And that means you're going to almost certainly wind up being fooled by the propaganda machine in, in various ways yourself. She says the fact that people think of themselves as rational creatures, but in reality have many large cognitive vulnerabilities which can and will be exploited. To cause them to interpret the data in an irrational way is not some amusing yet inconsequential piece of trivia. She says it's an absolutely crucial piece of the puzzle in understanding why the world is as messed up as it is, as well as in figuring out how to fix it. She says the immense political consequences of this reality extend into every facet of civilization. And this is where she starts to talk about this, this just world fallacy. She says, for example, have you ever wondered why ordinary people who ordinary people, you know, in real life often harbor highly negative opinions about, say, Julian Assange, seemingly to no benefit for themselves, even while he's being viciously persecuted for his truthful publications by some of the most corrupt political forces on the planet? She says you've probably wondered why. Or you've probably concluded that uh, it's because they're propagandized. But have you ever wondered why that propaganda works, even on some of the most intelligent people you know? Maybe now you can see why this is something that's worth understanding. Okay, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. Let's talk about this. Maybe you'll find it relevant. I hope you do. If you don't, that's okay. Discard what you don't need. We'll move on to something else You know, in, in, a, in a future segment here. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, slaving away on Pioneer Day, no less. But uh, I'm here because, number one, I love what I do, and number two, I'm going to speak while I have the opportunity to speak. This is one of those opportunities, and as I dive further into this subject, I hope you'll understand this, this is why. There's a passion that drives this, and that's to, to help people, in a very literal sense, become more woke, <laughs> not just in a social justice sense. I'm sharing with you some thoughts from an article by Caitlin Johnstone about the Just World Fallacy. And it's a it's a glitch in the human condition, which causes us to assume that if bad things are happening to someone, it's because that person deserves it. Apparently, blaming the victim is more psychologically comfortable for us than recognizing that, hey, we're living in an unjust world where we could very easily become the victim ourselves someday. So we select for that comfort over rational analysis. She uses the case of Julian Assange. I hearken back to the case of the Bundy family. And these men who were imprisoned for the better part of two years while awaiting trial, treated as if they were the most dangerous terror suspects on the face of the earth. (coughs) Only for more information to come forward that showed that the government had far overstepped its bounds, that the government had deliberately set up a confrontation and then played the victim. And the case had to be dismissed with prejudice. And now these guys are free men. And their cows are still out there grazing. All that expense, all that heartache, all of that injustice. And yet there's a strong majority of people who believe, well, now it served them right. And they're criminals and they're welfare ranchers. Without knowing anything about the case. But simply defaulting to that just world fallacy. If something bad happened to the Bundys, well, they must have deserved it. Look, I've been a close friend of Ryan Bundy's for quite some time. And there were times where even I was like, wow, does he deserve this? Was he and his family wrong in standing up to the federal government when they sent a militarized task force right to their doorstep to threaten them and beat them and intimidate them and steal their cows? Were they wrong to stand up for that? Were they wrong? Was Ammon wrong to go up to Oregon to stand up for the Hammond family? To peacefully occupy the Malheur Wildlife Refuge? I still don't get why why so many in the press insist on saying, well, it was a standoff. There was no standoff. A standoff indicates two armed forces sitting there pointing guns at each other and, you know, each daring the other to do something about it. There was none of that. People freely came and went from the refuge. Lavoy Finnicum and Ryan Bundy both traveled from the refuge down to southern Utah. Lavoy surprised me, showed up, went on my radio show. We had a meeting later that night, and then he turned around and went back with Ryan, freely traveling, by the way, and there, there was a just I'm sorry for what I'm about to say, but, but I can't think of any way to say there was a piece of human garbage. Actively calling the FBI while Lavoy was on my program. Demanding, he's right here in southern Utah, you guys have to do something. He called dispatch. They're in Iron County. Lavoy Finnegan is here, you guys need to arrest him. And you know what he was told? We have no arrest warrant. There's no cause to arrest him. A little something maybe you uh, have missed if all you've heard is the mainstream narrative. And then that same piece of garbage stood outside wanting to get a selfie with Lavoie when he walked out of the building. Sorry, let me bring my blood back down to a low simmer here and off a full boil. But for a lot of people, the idea was, well, they did something wrong. And therefore, you know, every all the injustice that happened, Lavoie being killed, the bunnies being imprisoned. They deserved it. Well, guess what? When it went before juries. Those who held out for jury trial, for the most part, there were three guys who were unjustly convicted, but that was mainly because uh, <laughs> that's because their their hands were tied. They were essentially gagged and not permitted to, to speak to their state of mind, why they went to Bunkerville in the first place. And their jury, unfortunately, was less than fully informed. I thought they had to rubber stamp what the federal government was telling them. Well, I guess if they met this, then we have to we have to convict. But other juries who had access to more truth, the jury in Oregon, other juries in Nevada. They got right to the point and said not not guilty or enough of them said it only takes one person to to cause a mistrial, to cause a hung jury. But multiple jurors were like, no way. The government is not making its case. In fact, this is looking worse for the government. And you could tell by the questions they would ask the government witnesses in these trials. All right, I'm getting off the path here. But see, they had access to to facts. They had access to information that helped them have a more complete picture of what had actually happened. And they recognized That whatever had happened, it wasn't a matter of, well, the Bundys deserved whatever happened to them. They came to exactly the opposite conclusion. They did not deserve it. But then you have members of the general public who most of what they know, well, it's it's been spoon-fed to them. Sometimes by liars, sometimes by propagandists. But always with an incomplete narrative. And it's just easier to, to believe, to assign blame for unfortunate events to the victims. This, by the way, was, was part of a study done in the early 1960s. A social psychologist named Melvin Lerner discovered that test subjects had that tendency. When an unfortunate act or an unfortunate event came upon a victim, to, they would assign blame to the victim. Even when that event couldn't have logically been the victim's fault. And, and here's the other side of the coin. They would also assign positive attributes to people who received good fortune even if that good fortune was due solely to random chance. And Melvin Lerner theorized that people have this unconscious need to organize their perceptions under a fallacious premise, that the world is basically just, good things tend to happen to good people, bad things tend to happen to bad people, but nothing in a rational analysis of our world tells us that this assumption is any way true. How many good people do you know who've been diagnosed with cancer or died unexpectedly at the hands of a drunk driver? It happens. I think that's uh, that was probably one of the most powerful things as, as I was watching uh, Saving Private Ryan almost 20 years ago or a little over 20 years ago. The portrayal of war there was, uh, was shocking. And one of the things that made it so shocking was it showed how, you know, yeah, in the movies, the good guys always come through. The hero always survives. But in their portrayal, I think it was a lot more true to life. And the, the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter if you're good or if you're bad. If you're in the wrong place, you're done. Terrible things happen to people who didn't really deserve it. And as Caitlin Johnstone points out, tests by Lerner and subsequent social psychologists back up that theory that most of us tend to interpret it in events like this uh, through this lens of irrational assumption that, uh, well, if it was good, they deserved it. If it was bad, they deserved it. She says, like other cognitive biases, this one fundamentally boils down to our annoying psychological tendency to select for cognitive ease over cognitive discomfort. We don't like to think about things that make us uncomfortable. And it feels more psychologically comfortable to interpret new information in a way that confirms our pre-existing opinions. By the way, that's how you get confirmation bias. It feels psychologically comfortable to assume something is true after you've heard it repeated many times. That's where you get the illusory truth effect. It feels more psychologically comfortable to believe we live in a fair world where people get what they deserve than to believe that we're in a chaotic world where even where many of the most materially prosperous people also happen to be among the most depraved and sociopathic. And the fact that we could be next in line to be victimized by them. That's where we get the just world fallacy. I hope you find this interesting. I find it fascinating, and you know, I, I hope you find it relevant in the sense that every one of us has to be careful because it colors the way we see our world. I'm going to come back to this. We'll finish up. I have another great article I want to share with you from Brandon Smith. That kind of builds on this and talks about our technological dependence and the end of freedom. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after these messages. Incredible, thoughtful discussion. Without the partisan outrage, this is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. We're talking about the just world fallacy. And I hope this makes sense to you. By the way, if you want to weigh in, I realize uh, today is only a holiday for people in the great state of Utah. It's Pioneer Day. But uh, for everybody else who's up and at their routine, uh, why don't you call me up? 801-331-8113. We can talk about this. Just world fallacy is where we find it more comfortable to believe that if if something bad is happening to another person, then uh, it's probably because they deserve it. So, you know, I use the case of the Bundys, uh, Caitlin Johnstone, who wrote this excellent article, uh, which will be included in the show notes today. Um, this is She's talking about Julian Assange. You know, people have never been harmed in one whit by Julian Assange or nonetheless very insistent. Well, you know, the government's right to go after him. Uh, one thing that she points out is, uh, you know, there were there were a lot of people within uh, the Trump administration talking about, well, it's karma when he was arre- when Assange was arrested earlier this year taken into custody by the brits why it's just karma really oh i didn't know you guys uh, i didn't know you guys believed in it are you buddhist or hindu <laughs> what what are you babbling on about karma but she says no no these the, when the trump administration started an aggressive assault on the free press which by the way they claimed to support you had a lot of people start reaching for Eastern philosophical concepts that had no evidentiary basis whatsoever in order to justify it. That's because their belief in a just world was psychologically more comfortable than going against their confirmation bias about the guy who spilled dirt on Queen Hillary. And th- so they selected it, she says, not because it was more truthful, but because it was more comfortable. OK, look, the, the powerful are going to do what they have to do to protect their power, right? Right. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Let them bear the responsibility for that. What about you and me? Don't we have responsibility to take ownership of our thoughts? This is why we have to be aware of this. This is why we have to know when someone is playing to those subconscious biases of ours or trying to play to our path of least resistance... And tell us comfortable lies that are a lot easier to grasp onto than uncomfortable truths. And by the way, if you have ever spoken uncomfortable truth, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Very few people will thank you for speaking uncomfortable truths to them. It's just not how it works. If you want to be unpopular, just take a stand. Seriously, for pretty much anything. Take a stand and you will find that uh, things are, are very, very uncomfortable. As Caitlin Johnstone says, this just world fallacy explains so much about what's going on today. It explains why everyone scrambles to defend their government when it begins victimizing a sovereign nation for refusing to comply with the demands of the powerful. By the way, I just as an aside... It took every bit of, you know, control of my gag reflex yesterday, not to to hurl on the spot when I heard Mike Pompeo talking about how well you can't trust a word that Iran is saying about, uh, you know, whether it's uh, that they've arrested 17 CIA spies or whatever. And, you know, that uh, they had people spying on their their nuclear program or on their military. You can't trust them. They lie. That's what they do. They, They lie. This is the same guy who just earlier this year was bragging to a group of college students about during his time in the CIA. <laughs> yeah, we were trained how to lie, how to cheat, how to steal. <laughs> he has no sense of irony. A professional liar calling out the Iranian government for lying. You can't believe anything they say. It's rich. It's it's like Larry Flint decrying the objectification of women. Can you believe it? And For those who don't know, he's the founder of Hustler magazine. Anyway, Caitlin Johnstone says it explains why people have been so easily propagandized into believing that poverty is caused by the laziness of the poor rather than exploitation of the rich. Now I don't agree with her entirely on this. There may be some nuance that she's missing, but she says it's it explains why people are so quick to justify censorship of a perceived political enemy on the Internet. It explains why any time video footage of a controversial police shooting goes viral, the comments are always flooded with people saying, well, the victim should have known better than to get better, better to get down on the ground slowly or to reach for his wallet to, you know, so quickly. You know, he should have complied more quickly. It explains why attempts to dismiss rape culture get bogged down moronic by moronic comments about how the victims should have behaved or dressed. It explains why people justify mass government surveillance, claiming if you've got nothing to hide, you have nothing to worry about. Now, she says some of those issues are more obvious to those on the left of the partisan divide. Some of them are more obvious to those on the right. But the impulse to create a false sense of safety in yourself is the exact same in all examples. Even those who are wide awake to what's going on in the world and don't fall for any of the victim-blaming dynamics described above still often fall for a victim-blaming illusion of their own, and that's the impulse to blame the propagandized masses for being propagandized instead of blaming the propagandists. She says that one's just as deluded as any of the others, and it works for the same reason. It's just plain more psychologically comfortable to believe that someone is being victimized by the system because of some flaw in the victim. She says, if we had a just and fair world, creating propaganda would be illegal along with murder, theft, fraud, and every other infraction on an individual's personal sovereignty. She says, to be clear, I don't think that making it, trying to make it illegal would work. She says, I think we need to evolve beyond the manipulations. So they no longer affect us. Ding, ding, ding. That's it. That is the answer. Do you want to become an unplayable piece on their chessboard? You just become propaganda proof. That's how you do it. She says, I believe we need to evolve beyond the manipulation so they no longer affect us, but that would require us to see it as the serious offense that it is. When someone is trying to deceive you, that is a serious offense. Serious enough that I believe there was a commandment about that. What is it? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Even if it's just a couple of degrees off, but it's done with the intent of deceiving, that's false witness. And she says in the future, if we're to evolve to see it clearly, propaganda will elicit elicit an instant and aggressive backlash from all of us against the propagandist. But right now it doesn't, and it's protected in part by people who believe the crime of manipulation, Google, I'm looking in your direction, is outweighed by the crime of being trusting. Deliberately manipulating people for money or power or both is an attack on people's psychological sovereignty. And until we see it as such, we can never turn our anger where it's meant to go on the perpetrators. If we can't eradicate propaganda, then we will never be able to see and understand what's going on in the world clearly enough to fix it. Now, she says we in reality live in a very unjust world. We live in a world where money is the only real valuing system and money selects for ruthlessness. Money elevates those who will do what it takes to get ahead, so money elevates sociopaths. No amount of muddle headed magical thinking about karma is going to make that tr- untrue. There's no grand arbiter in the sky selecting for goodness and badness. Obviously, she is an atheist. She says, we must select goodness and badness. People must be held to account for their actions by those that observe that those actions are unjust. Great things happen to bad people. Awful things happen to good people. And when culture elevates greed and sociopathy, that's only going to get more and more true till we put an end to it. So she says it's psychologically comfortable to believe that we live in a just world, but it's much less psychologically comfortable to understand that we don't. And we never will unless we fight very hard for it. One is an illusion. The other is a reality. A preference for reality over comfort is the primary factor that separates those who serve corrupt power from those who speak out against it. Reminds me of the quote from Upton Sinclair. It's very hard to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. And let's face it, there are millions and millions of people who are in the employ. Of the systems that seek to rule us. It's in their interest to keep the narrative going, to cling to the narrative, to defend the narrative. Even if in their hearts they may question, this doesn't quite feel right, but that paycheck and that pension, they're pretty powerful incentives. The most powerful decision you and I can make is to choose to become propaganda proof. That requires effort. That requires a willingness to study things out on your own. It requires an effort to organize and order your thinking to where your ability to discern fact from fiction is better. And above all, to never trust someone to tell you this is the way it is. You don't have to question anymore. The thinking is done for you. Now, unfortunately for me, I'm not an atheist like Caitlin Johnstone. So I'll tell you. There is an ultimate source of truth, and I believe that is our creator, God Almighty. If you're serious about understanding the truth, that is one source that I would say you can count on to never steer you astray. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I know I, I've kind of been on one today, but this is, this is an issue. The, the whole idea of being propagandized, the idea that it's just easy to manipulate the masses, it weighs heavily on me because I've seen it play out with my own eyes. And in my own way, I've tried to speak up and there's, you know, sometimes with success and sometimes without success. It scares people. When someone speaks against the narrative, the the conventional wisdom that we all know is true. By the way, there's a video I'm going to recommend. I don't have time to share it with you. It's a 30 minute long video and it's called You Are Being Groomed. And this is not just about the news media, but this is talking about uh, something else that's very ubiquitous in our lives. And that is big tech, Google, social media. You know, our screens that we sit in front of day in and day out. One of the most important video presentations you could ever watch. And if you watch this, I think, uh, you know, if you're you're an open-minded person, if you're not, uh, well, this is just a bunch of tinfoil hat conspiracy. You could likely arrive at the conclusion that we're sitting at a very precipitous turning point in world history. So I'll include that in the show notes, too. Again, it's called You Are Being Groomed. I think it's definitely worth your time. All right. Let's move on. Brandon Smith is one of my favorite writers. Find a lot of his work on alt-market.com. He had an opinion piece printed back on the 4th of July called Technological Dependence and the End of Freedom. This is kind of long, so I may have to carry this into the next hour, but I want to start sharing this with you because... I think this has relevance to to most of us, unless you are really a Luddite, in which case, I don't know how you would be listening to this show. This is going to have some relevance in your life. He says technology can be dazzling, but also debilitating to real human progress. And when I say progress, I don't mean advancements in the world of machines, but advancements in the world of people. And he says, one does not necessarily lead to the other. First, Brandon says, I fully recognize that whenever anyone attempts to criticize technological innovation, they take the risk of being labeled a crackpot or an outdated fossil, a barbaric relic of a foregone era. However, he says this attitude is an ignorant one. It assumes that the path we are on as a species is one of perpetual improvement as long as we continue to follow the great technology God. But what if this assumption is completely wrong? What if we're actually devolving rather than evolving? Now, he says, I'm not here to grunt and shake my spirit, the wheel and the combustion engine and the programmable computer. I like all these things. But what I don't like is the dark future I see when humanity turns machinery into a giant metal, polymer and digital nursemaid. And we lose our ability to take care of ourselves. His point here is that dependency is the cornerstone of slavery. And our civilization is becoming increasingly dependent. Now, Brandon Smith says, in my time on this earth, I've had the privilege and suffered the pain of watching the digital digital age come to fruition. I've witnessed the creation of the home computer, the birth of the Internet, the proliferation of cellular technology, and now the spread of artificial intelligence and 5G. He says, I've also seen the decay of an entire generation of millennials into uselessness and despondency. Lacking any practical skills of production or survival and completely reliant on digital technology for everything, including building up illusions of friendship and intimacy. He says, I've witnessed the pussification of America. Now, the counter arguments against this will vary. Some will say that our society has simply become more convenient, more comfortable. And this is a good thing. Others will claim that skeptics like myself are afraid of the social changes that come with the globalization that the digital age brings. Still, others will maintain that centralization and dependency are natural extensions of man's evolution, that it's inevitable, so we should embrace it. Now, these are also the classic arguments of futurists, a subculture of ideological zealots who believe that all old ideas and ways of living must be treated as obsolete and thrown out to make way for all new ideas and ways of living. The notion is that all, I- all new ideas are an automatic improvement. And that each new generation is superior to the one before as they supposedly have access to more knowledge. And thus they are more wise. But he says knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. And it's often misused to achieve rather brutal and vulgar goals. What the futurists will never admit is that there are very few new ideas in the world, only old ideas rehashed and recycled and repainted to look different. In the grand scheme of history, freedom as an idea is very old, but its social application on a grand scale is something entirely new. Centralization, whether by force, manipulation, or technological entrapment, is hardly a revolutionary concept. It's the oldest of philosophies. And the trend today indicates a path to swift centralization. And according to the evidence, this is not a natural progression, but the consequence of a deliberate agenda by elitist groups that wish to remain in power for centuries to come. The advent of many technologies today is not necessarily the problem. It's how these technologies are being applied in our society that's infantilizing the masses. So now he's going to give some specific examples. Communication overload. Cell technology and the Internet have changed the world. With a web-connected computer in your pocket, you will always be able to communicate with others. You'll rarely get lost. and You can even record video of where you go and everything you do. Instant memories. Who knows how much time this technology has added to a person's day or how many lives it has saved. But he says, let's consider the darker side. First, attention spans of Western nations have shortened to less than that of goldfish since about 2002, right about the time the cell phone and internet use began to explode. According to overall research, the average person now spends up to four hours a day just looking at their cell phone, and combined with daily social media use at home and at work, he says, I expect that this number increases dramatically. In fact, American adults spend approximately 11 hours per day interacting with various media. That's most of their, waste, that's most of their waking life being distracted by minutiae. As Paul Rosenberg calls it, the great ephemera machine. Keeping us focused on things that don't really matter. The parts of the world that have instant access to this technology are being zombified, says Brandon Smith, and they don't seem to realize it. Oversaturation of information and instant gratification trigger an oxytocin and dopamine response in the human brain, similar to the response we get when we socialize normally. But there is evidence to suggest that the strength of human interaction has a lot to do with the pleasure level we receive through a dopamine response. Social media interactions are a poor proxy for real relationships. So social media creates a near constant flow of dopamine, but also weaker and less significant. This has led to a new form of addiction, perhaps more invasive than any chemical drug in existence. By the way, not this week, but uh, last week. So this would have been what is today? Today is the 24th, 22nd, the 15th. That's uh, You need to find the uh, July 15th edition of the American Muzo Show. Eric Muzo talks about this in some detail, about how social media is our new addiction. And it has everything to do with what Brandon Smith is just talking about here. That uh, oxytocin, that, that dopamine release that we get. When someone likes your post on Facebook, oh, that's awesome. It's uh, this positive feedback. Now, Brandon Smith says interaction with other human beings without social media or instant gratification has become unthinkable. But the real world doesn't function according to personal whims. And so people have begun to discard time when functioning away from the web. They become grossly impatient like small children. When forced to do the remedial tasks that are required for survival, they grow frustrated and complacent. They avoid the pauses or quiet moments in life. Refusing to ponder experiences and explore the deeper meaning behind the events they read about briefly each day in their newsfeeds, all the information's at their fingertips, but they had no clue how to absorb and to apply it critically. Okay, I'm going to stop here for a minute because we're coming up on our top of the hour break. Does that not ring true, though? And I'm saying this with the understanding I am as guilty of this as any person. I wake up in the middle of the night. Sue me, I'm over 50 years old. My prostate has all the say in the matter. I wake up in the middle of the night. First thing I reach for is my phone. Now, partly so I have, you know, a clear path to to the bathroom and I use the phone to light the way. But it's also because, uh, hey, I may have got a message. I need to see what's happening on social media. And I know I'm not the only guy who does this. It is addictive. And I think we're going to learn in the years and maybe in the generations ahead all the convenience of having all that information at our fingertips may have damned us more than it actually benefited us. But that comes down to how we use it. We'll come back to Brandon Smith's article in the next hour. Stick around, we're going to check news headlines coming up next. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be right back. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. Without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Oh my gut. We need to talk about something. Constipation. Abdom-